Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Well, hello everyone. I'm Deb. And I'm Beth. And we want to welcome you to episode number 24 of Dying to be Found. We're so glad that you're taking time out of your day-to-day to be with us. Beth and I are always trying to find stories that you can relate to and leave the content up to you, our listeners. If you have a story that you would like to hear, please email us at dying, the number two, the letter be found at gmail.com. And if you'd like to know more about our podcast or your hosts, please visit Dying to be found.com spelled just like you see it on our logo. So Beth, how are you today? Awesome. Oh, tell me more. Just did a lot of things this morning before we're taping here and it feels good to get things done. It sure was. I'm going to give our listeners a little heads up. Beth and I tried to record early this morning and we both found that mornings are probably not the best time for us. So we took a break. It's later in the afternoon and I think we're both ready to go here. I think so. I feel so much more awake. Me too. Hey, listen, I wanted to tell you a real quick thing just before we get started today. As you know, I've been traveling around quite a bit and I just returned from a family trip to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Oh boy, Beth, was that ever an eye-opener? I'd never been there before. Have you heard of Myrtle Beach? I heard of Myrtle Beach, but I thought that was in Florida. Oh, (laughs) well, Florida beaches are really beautiful because the sand is white, the water is blue or emerald green, depending on where you're at. But the further north you go, obviously, the the Atlantic, it gets a little gray. Mm -hmm. Well, that wasn't the problem, Beth. What was? I don't know if you ever book Airbnbs or VRBOs. Yes, had terrific success. Good. And I have too, up until this week. I was a little bit more than surprised when I pulled up to the property that I rented for our family to get together. And Beth, what we walked into, it was horrifying. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Let's just say that we rented in a crack neighborhood or a meth head neighborhood. It was awful. It would be. My gosh. I was stewing over it probably for the first couple of days. <gasps> you stayed there more than one day? Yeah, we went for three three days. I would have looked for another place. I mean, we already paid. You couldn't get your money back. Oh, that's true. I would have. I actually told my kids, I am willing to get a hotel to get us out of here. It was not, the house itself was not bad. But I went and looked at the pictures again and hindsight's a little twenty twenty. You can kind of read between the lines at that point. Well, we had meth heads walking up and down the streets 24-7. We had homeless people camped right next to us in an empty lot. The neighborhood itself was, oh gosh, crumbling buildings around us. I mean, I don't want to speak badly of people because everybody's circumstances are so different, but for the amount of of money that we paid for prime beach season, I was flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. What really, really just put me over the edge is when I opened the oven to go make some lunch, 
there was a huge pan of leftover moldy macaroni and cheese sitting inside that oven. OMG. Yeah. And you use that oven? Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I had to feed the kids. Oh my gosh. I know. All right. So I did stew on it for a few days and Beth, I swear, I'm really a kind person when it comes to giving reviews. So I emailed the owner and told them, look, you know, I I was tolerant at first, but I'm just going to tell you before I put this on a review, your false advertising. I'm a little bit perturbed at this point because I sent him a picture of the mac and cheese. He was like, oh, no, sorry for your experience. But that's about it. Mm, not good. Yeah. What do you do? Looking back, the pictures were fine, but I don't know. I mean, I look at reviews too. Anyway, long story short is I I won't be returning to Myrtle Beach. I think I'm going to go back to the Florida area where the sand is white and the water's blue. And you know where you're staying. And I know where I'm staying. Hey, listen, okay, I know we need to get started here. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pass you the reins and let you take over from here. And unless there's anything else you want to talk about, then I say, let's go. I want to talk about this case. Okay, let's go. Thanks, Deb. Today, we're going to talk about a pretty famous case that takes place in British Columbia, Canada. This case is about the pig farmer killer, also known as Robert William or Willie Picton. Robert was one of three children born to Leonard and Louise Picton on October 24th, 1949. He came from three generations of a family of pig farmers in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, 27 kilometers or 17 miles east of Vancouver. When it was Robert's turn to take over the farm, he raised only a handful of pigs to sell to local residents, so he didn't make much money off of pig farming. He had other interests. What kind of interests? Well, you'll see. Don't want to give up the goods yet. Yeah, probably not a good idea. But I mean, I know where it's going because of our genre, but okay, let's go. All right. Growing up in the Picton household was very dysfunctional. According to family and friends, Leonard was violently abusive towards Robert. Friends and family said that Leonard had very little influence over his children. So he was an absent father. Yes. But then there's Louise, his mother. Oh boy. Louise, on the other hand, seemed to rule the roost. Robert and his young brother, Dave, began working on the farm at an early age. Their mother was very demanding and tended to the pigs far more than she did towards her own children. Aww. I know. She often sent them to school in unwashed clothes, smelling like manure, dirt, and dead animals. Oh my gosh. Okay. First of all, gross. But secondly, shame on her. Do we know how impressionable kids are at that age? Kids are mean. Like, they're the meanest human beings in the world. They are. They pick on each other. So why would she do such a thing? Well, we're going to find out about why he smells like dead animals. Okay, well, I know he's a pig farmer. He is. I'm going to start there. And I've been on pig farms before. Oh, we have. So I know what it smells like. <laughs> yeah. The two boys were called names in school because they stink so badly. And classmates called them stinky piggy. Aww. If Robert didn't want to be found around the farm, he would hide in the gutted carcasses of large hogs. 
Um, I know. Isn't that gross? Yeah. Think about it, though. Small child can certainly fit into something like that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Obviously, that's probably one of the reasons why he's why he carries that odor. Yes, that's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, this reminds me of being in elementary school when several of my classmates would pick on one of the girls in my class period, and they always told her that she had fleas. That's so sad. It is. I mean, I guess at the time, you know, so-and-so has fleas, but... I always thought that was so mean. I actually befriended this girl and it wasn't because I felt sorry for her, Beth. I was just pretty much nice to everybody. A lot of the kids in my class grew up on farms, but they came to school just as clean as I did. So I guess I don't really understand how Robert's mother could do such a thing and send him to school that way. No, I don't neither. It goes to show you her frame of mind, which uh, I will actually get into again. Okay. A lot is revealed about Louise for a variety of reasons. One being that she sent Robert's older sister, Linda, off to live with relatives because Louise didn't think a farm was a proper place to raise a daughter. Then there's a story that eventually had everyone talking. On October 16th, 1967, when Dave, Robert's younger brother, got his driver's lesson at age 16, he took his father's truck out for a drive. A 14-year-old boy named Tim Barrett was walking down the road and somehow Dave slammed right into Tim. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Dave knew right away that Tim was in bad shape, so he ran home and told his mother what had happened. He did the right thing. He did. Louise stopped what she was doing and quickly went to the injured boy. Okay, well that's good. Yeah. After looking Tim over, she leaned down and rolled Tim down the embankment, turned around, and went back home. What? Yeah, that goes to show you her son at least has a conscience, and she certainly doesn't. Wow. So she's teaching her boys already how to behave. She sure is. The next morning, a neighbor whose son had seen Tim the night before went out to search for him because he wasn't seen in the morning. During his search, he found Tim's shoes and scoured the area. Peeking over the embankment, the neighbor and Tim's mother spotted his body lying in the water. Oh, gosh. So Picton's mom knowingly rolled him down into a body of water and let him drown? Yes. Oh my gosh. Police arrived right away and pulled Tim's body out of the water. His autopsy revealed the cause of death was drowning. He did not die from his injuries in the accident. After the accident was investigated, Louise was never charged, but Dave was sent to juvenile court. Oh my gosh. So did anyone find out about Louise's play in Tim's death? Because earlier you said that everybody was talking about what had happened to Tim. I don't know what happened because from what I read, it said that word got around. So was there any speculation or did Dave just keep his mouth shut? I'm assuming just word of mouth. Back then, you know, there wasn't the TV news like there is now and... Yeah, more than three stations (laughs) (laughs) that we grew up with. Exactly. Growing up in his early teens, Robert used his savings to buy a calf, which became a pet to him. After school one day, he couldn't find his pet and asked his mother where it was. His mother replied, Check the barn! Off Robert went to the barn and there he found his pet slaughtered. (gasps) Okay, so me, 
being one with nature and animals. Beth, that's so cruel. But do you remember that we had a pet pig? Sure do. <laughs> do you remember its name? No. What was it? Pig. <laughs> Yeah, dad wouldn't let us name the pig because we were going to have that pig in our freezer that winter. Oh my. And I remember having pork chops one night saying, these are the smallest pork chops I've ever seen. This must be pig. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we didn't grow up thinking it was a pet. I mean, honestly, behind the scenes, yes, I did. Because Kathy and I secretly called the pig Wilbur from that movie Charlotte's Web. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I know. Well, we knew what was going to happen. I mean, the pig was there one day and gone the next. So we just assumed when we ate those small pork chops that that was pig. Yeah, I'm sure it was. In 1963, 14-year-old Robert dropped out of school to work as a butcher's apprentice. In 1970, At the age of 21, he left his apprentice to work full-time on the family farm. His father died in 1978 and his mother in 1979 leaving the pig farm to Picton and his two siblings. Linda didn't want to farm, so David took the house and Robert took the farm. Robert would tend to the farm and then head home to a remote area on the property and lived in a trailer. Okay, I mean, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Certainly sounds like he might be on the right path. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of interaction with Linda here since she was sent off to live with other family members. Right. Okay, nothing like a little hard work though. Exactly. One of the farmhands by the name of Bill Hiscock called the farm a creepy looking place and said Robert was a quiet guy who occasionally showed some bizarre behavior. Well, first of all, I did look this farm up and it is definitely not kept very well. So yeah, it was creepy. But what kind of bizarre behaviors do you know? Well, he would imitate animals and even played a practical joke one Christmas Eve when he released some of the hogs into the streets. He was later quoted as referencing these pigs with local, quote, working girls. In other words, sex workers. So he associated the pigs with sex workers? Yes. I mean, I know that we've done several episodes where killers have mummy issues and go after the sex workers, but I don't get the link yet. No. As an introduction to what follows, I would like to say that this is Canada's largest investigation of any serial killer in Canadian history. The cost of the investigation was $70 million by the end of 2003. Canadians refer to Picton killings as the pig killer killings. In 1996, the Picton brothers registered a non-profit charity on the rundown farm called Piggy Palace Good Times Society. Yeah, that's actually a pretty cute name. Well, it's weird for me. Well, it's weird, but it's in association to a pig farm, but... That's true. That's true. Yeah. So it was registered with the Canadian government with that name. The Picton siblings often had gatherings that took place in a converted slaughterhouse on the farm. Mm. Events included raves and wild parties, and patrons were often Vancouver sex workers. Does that surprise us? So they were invited? Yes. Okay. So it was a select group of individuals? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now I'm starting to get it. And with that, I think that I can see that Robert's starting to set the scene. Yes. 
Okay. Just to note the events that took place on the farm, the Pictons were eventually sued by Port Coquitlam, officials for violating zoning ordinance, which included neglecting agriculture for which it had been zoned, and for having altered a large farm building on the land for the purpose of holding dances, concerts, and other recreations. Of course, Robert ignored the violation orders and held a 1998 New Year's Eve party, after which they received an injunction banning future parties. So somebody called the cops because they were being too loud. Exactly. That's what my thoughts are too. Hmm. The society's nonprofit status was removed in 1999 for the inability to produce financial statements. Well, I can imagine how those are. They're probably in a shoebox. Oh, yeah. Or if they had any financial statements at all, because it sounds to me like they just wanted a party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did they register the name if they didn't plan on running it that way? But I guess that's another story. On March 23, 1997, Robert was charged with the attempted murder of Wendy Lynn Eistetter. Robert had stabbed her several times during this assault. Eistetter told police that Robert handcuffed her, but she managed to escape. Well, that's good. She was able to disarm Robert and stabbed him with his own weapon. Good for her. Go, girl! Yes, Robert sought treatment at Eagle Ridge Hospital, while Ice Tedder was recovering in the emergency department next door, he was soon arrested and was released on a $2,000 bond. In January 1998, the charges were dismissed. Why? I mean, Wendy clearly had a solid case. How could that happen? Well, unfortunately, Wendy was addicted to drugs and police felt that this case could go two ways. One, Wendy's testimony might not hold up in court because she might not give a consistent or accurate account as to what happened. Okay, well, based on my vacation that I just came home from, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Or two, both she and Robert were both stabbed in this incident. So it was really one person's word against the other as to how the events took place. Okay, that makes sense. It does. So self-defense versus self-defense. Now I'm going to talk about the murders. Remember the farmhand named Bill Hiscox? Yes. Well, he noticed that women who visited the farm eventually went missing. Police were also conducting an investigation on several of these missing women in the area, along with investigating Robert and his brother, Dave, for firearms violations. So it sounds like Dave is not much better than Robert. Exactly. I guess growing up with that same mother. Yeah, I'm sure. Do you know what the age difference was? No. Okay. This led the police to serve a warrant to search the Picton property. Both Picton brothers were arrested on February 5th, 2002 for firearm violations. Once they were released the next day, police kept Robert under surveillance. But not Dave? They didn't mention Dave. Dave is probably by Robert anyways, but they probably put the injunction against Robert. Yeah, if he was the one really running the farm, he was the one that had the handful of pigs, right? Yes. Okay. 
what they found in the search of the Picton farm, police obtained a second warrant to search the property as part of the British Columbia Missing Women investigation. During the second search of the property, they meet a gruesome discovery. Hmm. Personal belongings to some of the missing women were found along with some of their remains. Oh my. On February 22nd, 2002, Robert Picton was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of women. Remember the bizarre behavior I mentioned earlier? Yes, animal noises. Well, surveillance footage from the jail cell captured Robert holding up a glass of orange juice up to the camera as if to give a celebratory toast, as if he was proud of his accomplishments on the farm. Oh my. That is just totally wrong. Yeah, that's, that is bizarre. I think it just goes to show you, you know, I didn't read anything about a psychiatry report, but they certainly could have done one on him. I'm sure they probably did, but strange person all the way around for sure. Mm-hmm. Excavations at the Pictum Farm continued from Robert's arrest through November 2003. He was eventually charged with a total of 27 first-degree murders between April 2002 and May 2005. Wow. That is a lot in such a short time. Clearly, he's not the right of mind. The investigation itself took three years, but you said his parents died when he was, what, in his late 20s? Mm-hmm. So he had time. I'm thinking he had done this over a period of time. It was just them finding all the evidence in a three-year period through their investigations. One of these murder charges was later dropped due to lack of evidence, keeping 26 counts on the table. Oh gosh, that's still a lot. Forensic analysis on the property was difficult because Robert's victims' bodies were left exposed to the elements and were eaten by both insects and pigs on the farm. What do you think about that, Deb? Well, I will say this. We have family members who were in the in the pig farming business at one point, and I loved to go play upstairs in the hayloft. I did too. But walking past that one little section where their pigs were at, I was terrified that I would fall into the pigs. And I have heard that pigs can be quite aggressive. Oh. Yeah, I was pretty scared at the time. So was he feeding them to the pigs? Yes. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. On March 10th, 2004, the government revealed that Robert may have ground up human flesh and mixed it with pork that he sold to the public. Ugh. I know. That's one of the things that really grosses me out is when you hear stories like this. Oh, God, yes. If I ever bought pork from Robert Picton, okay, let's say I bought it a month ago when I found out what he did. I, I, I'm pretty sure I would just have a continuous stream of vomit, Beth. That's awful. And that's beyond anything I can even fathom. Like, I'm getting, ooh, I'm getting worked up about this just thinking about that. Yeah. Remember I had mentioned he only kept a handful of pigs to sell to the locals, Deb? Mm-hmm. Well, the province's health authority later issued a warning. What would you do in that situation? If you knew that you bought pork from Robert Picton, what would your response be? I don't know. I probably would vomit like you. Yeah. Ugh. Now we're at the preliminary inquiry, which is a judicial hearing that is used in serious criminal cases to determine whether there is enough evidence to go to trial. Okay. They found remains and personal items on the property. So I'm hoping that maybe there's enough evidence. Mm-hmm. 
Robert's preliminary inquiry was held in 2003 and had a publication ban until 2010. So is that like the same ban that the Canadian judicial system placed on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka when we talked about them? I believe so. Okay. Picton's attempted murder of Wendy Eistetter in 1997 was revealed during this time which I talked about earlier. There was a stay, however, in that case, which means when a judge or crown decides that it would be bad for the justice system for a case to continue, that the issue of guilt or innocence is never determined. That's when they dropped the charges on Wendy because it was his word against hers and vice versa. Oh, for Wendy. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. The date for the jury trial was set to start January 8, 2007, but was later postponed to January 22nd. On that day, Robert had six first-degree murder charges against him. Why only six? That's probably the only things that they found crucial evidence in identification. Oh, yeah. Okay. I I see that. Like when you were talking about the Canadian judicial system Mm -hmm. and how that worked. Okay. That makes sense. That's too bad, though. Yes. The media ban was lifted, and for the first time, Canadians heard the gory details of what was found during the long investigations. Skulls were cut and submerged in a pink soup of decomposing human matter, where hands and feet were shoved inside the skull. My. The heads, hands, and feet of two women were found in buckets in a workshop freezer. Oh, wow. It doesn't get worse than this. This is something from a movie. Yes, absolutely. Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes. Remains of one victim were stuffed in a garbage bag and her bloodstained clothes were found in Robert's trailer. Part of another victim's jawbone and teeth were found beside Robert's slaughterhouse. A .22 caliber revolver with an attached dildo contained both Robert's and his victim's DNA. In a video recording, Robert admitted to using the dildo on the end of the revolver to use as a silencer. Wow. As of February 20th, 2007, the following information was presented to the court. There were 80 unidentified DNA profiles, both male and female, on evidence. So there could have likely been 80 victims? Yes, or more. Wow. Items found in Robert's trailer included a loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel and one round fired. Wow along with a 357 Magnum handgun and ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of faux fur-lined handcuffs, a syringe with three milliliters of blue liquid inside, and a Spanish fly aphrodisiac. I don't know what that is. You don't know what an aphrodisiac is? No, I don't know what a Spanish fly aphrodisiac is. Oh, no, I don't know neither, but it's something I've heard. I'm sure you have too. No? I don't think so. I'm pretty naive. Well, you look that up and I'll continue to talk to our folks. I will. A videotape of Robert's friend saying that Picton told him that a good way to kill a heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. Now, I hear that's very brutally painful. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And that aphrodisiac is just basically, a, I think it's a common substance. So nothing special about it. I guess it's just a name for an aphrodisiac. Okay. A second tape of an associate named Andrew Bellwood who said Robert mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them. 
then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to the pigs. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, that you can see why it was such a sensationalized case in Canada. Yes. And there were photos of remains of one victim's contents in a garbage can in Robert's slaughterhouse. So he's got his trophies. He does. So we're going to move on to the verdict. On December 9th, 2007, the jury returned with a verdict that Robert was not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but was guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. What's the difference? Do you know? No. Maybe you want to look that up. Not right now. Okay, so on December 11th, 2007, after reading 18 victim impact statements, British Columbia's Supreme Court Judge Justice James Williams sentenced Robert to life in prison with no possibilities of parole for 25 years, the maximum punishment for second-degree murder, and equal to the sentence of first-degree murder. This means that Robert will have a parole hearing in just 10 years. So... What you're telling me is that he got 25 years for as many victims as they found. It was all lumped into 25 years, even though they found 80 DNA samples at the property? Yes. Well, you have to remember that there may have been those bodies, but they weren't identified. So I wonder if maybe some of those DNA samples came from the piggy parties that the Pictons held on the farm. Could be. Good thought. Now, you said he had a parole hearing 10 years into his sentence. So that would have come up, what, in 2017? Is he out today? No. Well, thank goodness. I don't think he'll ever get out. But they'll continue to have parole hearings. Oh, yes. You have regular ones. Okay. So not as long as he's giving a toast for his behavior on video. Exactly. The Court of Appeal dismissed the defense appeal by two to one majority. Good. They also allowed the Crown to appeal based on the fact that the trial judge erred by excluding some evidence. Plus separating the total of 26 counts between one group of 20 and one group of six. The order was stayed because a conviction on the group of six counts of second-degree murder would not be able to be set aside. So tell me, why did the court separate the victims into two different groups? Well, they felt that charging Picton with all 26 murders would be too much for the jury, so they took six of the cases based on the material evidence they found during the original investigation. So the ones, the six cases they felt were the most strong. Yes. Okay, I see. I'm going to add a documentary to the show notes so our listeners can watch it later. It gives a lot more details of the victim's identity than what we can fit in today's episode. Okay. On July 30th, 2010, the Supreme Court of Canada made its decision and dismissed Robert's appeal and affirmed his convictions. The argument that Picton should be granted a new trial was unanimously rejected by the justices of the Supreme Court of Canada. I mean, to me, that's just common sense. It certainly is. During a court hearing on August 4, 2010, Judge Williams stated that Picton should be committed to a federal penitentiary. Up to that point, he was held in a provincial pretrial institution. In June 2018, he was allegedly transferred from Kent Institution in British Columbia to another penitentiary in Port Carchet, Quebec. 
In 2015, the Picton property was fenced off under lien by the Crown of Right of British Columbia, and all buildings on the property except for one small barn were demolished. Townhomes are now built in the surrounding area, along with some walking trails, and you would never know that the Picton farm ever existed except for that one small barn that is fenced off. Wow. Isn't that something that they could take the property like that and turn it into just an updated version of society? Yeah. If I knew about the case, I certainly wouldn't live there. No. So there you have it. Robert Picton, the pig farmer killer, Canada's most infamous serial killer. So, Deb, do you have a teachable moment? Oh, goodness. Let me think about this for a moment because that was tough to listen to. Yeah, it was tough putting this one together. I'm sure there's a lot more components, but let's go back to Robert Picton's personal hygiene for a moment. You had mentioned that his mother had sent him to school smelling like the farm. I get that. People get busy and they're tending to animals. And you did mention that she probably treated the animals a little better than her own children, but maybe it wasn't just his mother. Maybe Robert found going to school with poor hygiene was just a way to deliberately keep people away from him because if you're going through things in your personal life, not necessarily at school, then maybe he was withdrawn into himself and it was easier to keep people away. What do you think of that? That's a very good point. I never thought of that one. Well, in today's day and age, school officials obviously are much more aware of mental health, especially back since COVID. There's a lot of mental health issues with teenagers, but... I would take this as a warning sign that obviously something's not right at home. When a kid comes to school looking dirty and smelling dirty, you know something's got to be going on. So, teachable moment. If you are an adult, like a teacher or even a neighbor who knowingly observes a child's physical condition, get yourself involved. It's better to send children's services out to a wellness check rather than them growing into a person like Robert Picton did. But maybe if other adults took action, Robert may not have done what he did. But unfortunately, Beth, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. Okay. And that's a wrap. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for that, Beth. As always, the great storyteller. I appreciate that. And we appreciate our listeners, so thanks for coming and joining us today. Before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast forum. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dying, the number two, the letter B found. If you like our episodes, please rate, share, and consider buying us a coffee. Be sure to leave a comment at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found spelled just like you see it in our logo. And thanks everyone. We will talk to you next Thursday. Bye.